everything in life is, is a cycle. Um, and the markets are no different that we oscillate between bear markets and bull markets. We go into a bear market for one to two years and then we bottom and we go into a bull market for five to seven, sometimes upwards of 10 years. So that's the cycle of markets. So what we do know from history is that every bear market ends, every stock market crash turns into a stock market rally. This time is going to be no different. This is not a world end. So. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, please be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how are we doing today? Uh, it's, it's a good day in the markets, Aaron. It's another good day. Yesterday was a fantastic day. Today's a good day. Earnings are coming in better than expected. Um, big intraday reversal last week, very bullish bottoming sign. Uh, we're seeing lots of bottoming signals emerge in the market, and we are consequently telling folks to get their shopping bags ready and go on their holiday stock shopping spree. So color us bullish right now. Color us bullish. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to getting that into just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, vertical farming, inflation, the housing market, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, and I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lengo. Let's get straight to the good stuff. Uh, like you mentioned, uh, your research notes over the past week have been all about one thing, and that's uh, prepping for the big holiday stock shopping spree. Right. The question is, why? Why are we buying these stocks now? And has this shopping spree started? And if so, what stocks are you looking to buy? Right. So, um, it's nearly impossible to predict a stock market bottom. But what we do know from history is that every bear market eventually ends and turns into a bull market. That That's just the cycle of finance, the cycle of Wall Street, the cycle of financial markets. Everything in life, Aaron, really is a cycle. Um, the sun rises every morning. It sets every night. Uh, the seasons, you know, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, winter. Uh, you get up, you eat breakfast, brush your teeth. Maybe you brush your teeth and eat breakfast. I brush my teeth before I eat my breakfast. But anyway, that's besides <laughs> the point. Um, you go to work, you, you work all day, you come home, you have dinner, you enjoy some family time, and then you go to sleep and you do it all again the next day. Everything in life is, is a cycle. Um, and the markets are no different that we oscillate between bear markets and bull markets. We go into a bear market for one to two years, and then we bottom and we go into a bull market for five to seven, sometimes upwards of 10 years. So that's the cycle of markets. So what we do know from history is that every bear market ends, every stock market crash turns into a stock market rally. This time is gonna be no different. This is not a world ender. So let's start with that basis. So what we can do in a time like this is say, okay, we're 30% we're down, um, we're 12 months in, we're 11 months in, and uh, that kind of puts us right around average bear market length and, and drop. The median bear market decline since 1929 is about 29%, I believe. And the average, the median time is 12 months. So down 29% over 12 months is your median bear market. We're down 30% over 11 months. So we're, we're right there. So what we can do is we can say, okay, we got this historical context. Now let's look for bottoming signals. Let's look for signs that the market is working towards a bottom, getting close to a bottom, or has maybe even bottomed already. And when we look at those signs, we're seeing a lot of positive signals that the stock market is either at a bottom, has already bottomed, or very close to a bottom in terms of price and time. That when you look at valuations, that's a really important one. We dropped to, at the low, we were around 15.5 times forward earnings. Over the past three decades, stock market crashes have typically bottomed around 15 times forward earnings. The exception, of course, was the great financial crisis of 2008. We do not have that today. Stocks dropped all the way to about 11 times forward earnings then. And that's because confidence in the economy was literally zero. 
we're not there today. So we are, you know, stocks bottomed in 2020 around 14 to 15 times forward earnings. They bottomed in 2018 around 14 to 15 times forward earnings. They bottomed in, in 2002 at the dot-com crash around 15 times forward earnings. So that level is kind of the level at which stocks tend to bottom absent a massive economic disaster. So we're there today. So check on the valuations. Um, what about the technicals? Well, the S&P 500 has collapsed to its 200-week moving average. Not 200-day moving average, 200-week moving average. And if you pull up a chart of the S&P 500 next to its 200-week moving average, you will see that 200-week moving average has time and time and time again over the past 70 years served as a very solid line of support for the market. Almost every bear market, with a very few exceptions, almost every bear market of the past 70 years has bottomed either at or right around the 200-week moving average. So, you know, obviously, again, 08 was an exception, massive economic disaster. Uh, so there are certain exceptions, but most bear markets do tend to bottom right around that 200-week moving average. We're there today. We ran into the 200-week moving average, and we're holding support at that level. So the technicals look pretty good. Check that box. Also on the technical front, we have the relative strength index dropped into oversold territory. That's pretty rare for the S&P 500. And usually it marks a local stock market bottom followed by a big rally. Market breadth at the low around 12% or 13% of stocks, were uh, New York Stock Exchange stocks or stocks on the NYSE, were trading uh, above their 200-day moving average. So 85% of stocks were trading below the 200-day moving average. That's the panic zone. We call the panic zone less than 20%. Stock markets tend to bottom when the number of NYSE stocks trading above their 200-day moving average drops below 20%. We dropped into that level. We look at the VIX, the volatility index. Stock markets tend to bottom when the VIX pops into that 34 to 45 range. We popped into that 34 range last, and into that range last week, we popped above 35 for the first time in this cycle. So across a lot of metrics, you're seeing bottoming signs emerge. Um, investor sentiment, American Association of Individual Investors, AAII, they send out a weekly survey to individual investors, retail investors, asking them, are you bullish? Are you bearish? Are you neutral? How are you feeling about the stock market over the next 12 months? The number of bears in that survey has climbed to near all-time highs. The last time that survey was that bearish was March 9th, 2009, the very week after the stock market bottomed. Stock market bottomed on March 6, 2009, a Friday. So that next week, the sentiment hit all-time lows, or all-time low, yeah, all-time lows, bearish sentiment, all-time highs. And that's where we are today. The other reading was back in the early 1990s, right around the bottom of that bear market. So sentiment is as dour as it is when stock markets normally bottom. So there's another thing. Uh, cash positioning, Bank of America's equity fund manager survey. They go out, they survey a bunch of fund managers. What levels of cash are you sitting on? Cash levels today have hit record highs, higher than 08 even, higher than 07, 08, 09, and as high as they were back in the uh, uh, depths of the dot-com crash. So that's another contrarian buying signal. Short positioning, the put-call ratio is above one. Stock markets tend to form local bottoms when the put-call ratio goes above one. The percentage of firms, hedge funds, smart money institutions that are short the market is also soaring. I don't have exact data on that, but a bunch of surveys, RBC surveys, the most recent one, comes out and shows how much, uh, how bearish the, these hedge funds are. That also is another contrarian buying signal. So when we look across all of these metrics, and literally I just rattled off, it seemed like a ton of them, but what we have on our radar is a bunch more, dozens of these metrics across valuation, across earnings, across technicals, across sentiment, across positioning, across all of these things that we are, all of these indicators are flashing, saying we are either very close to or already at a stock market bottom. Um, now, all of these indicators could be completely worthless if a black swan risk emerges, right? That, and that that's the big risk today, some black swan event. Now, for, for context, a black swan event is an unforeseen, a massive economic event that happens that throws everything off course. Um, in 2008, that was Lehman Brothers. A lot of people don't know this, but the bear market of 08 would have ended in about September of 08 had it not been for Lehman Brothers. 
And then the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy happened and that just threw a whole wrench in the situation and the financial contagion started and boom, we dropped like a rock. So there is definitely potential for a black swan risk. And if we get that black swan risk, stocks will continue to crash and we will take a very big leg lower. But that's always a risk. That's always a risk. I think the risk of that happening, the probability of that happening is very low. Credit Suisse, there are rumors they're on the brink. Deutsche Bank, there are rumors they're on the brink. But since then, European and uh, British markets have calmed down. So whatever brink they were on, they've walked back from that a little bit. Not to mention, those banks don't have much, from my understanding, relation a risk relation to the major U.S. banks, the Bank of America, J.P. Morgan's, Goldman Sachs, all of whom just reported earnings and all of whom sounded a pretty optimistic tone. They're pessimistic about the economy, but they're optimistic about their standing, about their cash positioning, about their leverage, about their lack of risk exposure to a financial contagion. So I don't think we have another Lehman moment in the works right now. Absent a Lehman moment, Every indicator out there is saying we're close to a stock market bottom. Valuations, earnings, 200-week moving average, sentiment, positioning data, whatever you call it, whatever you want to you know, go down the list, all the checkboxes are being checked. And that's why we're getting increasingly bullish on the stock market right now. We think, you know, we've been calling for a long time, a grand finale sell-off, a grand finale sell-off, a grand finale sell-off. And I think we got that grand finale sell-off. And it kind of crescendoed last Thursday after we got the really hot CPI print. We got that really hot September CPI print and stocks opened up massively lower. The NASDAQ was down more than 3% at one point. It closed the day up more than 2%, 5% swing. We think that morning sell-off, that 3% drawdown was the crescendo of selling pressure, of capitulation, of of panic in the markets. And therefore, we're now ready to move higher. Interestingly enough, we ran the analysis on it and I actually have it up right here. I, I pulled up an Excel spreadsheet and went through all the instances and wrote them down <laughs> of when, when stocks opened up lower and finished higher and that swing was greater than five points in magnitude. So five percentage point bullish intraday swing. Whenever we had that in the midst of a bear market. And I wrote down all the times we had that. There were 20 counts of it since 1970. So the past 50 years, it's happened 20 times. And 19 of those 20 times, stocks were higher a year later. The only time they weren't was in the midst of the, um, of the great financial crisis, uh, the great, of the Lehman moment. So again, another data point showing that a Lehman moment could throw everything off. But if we don't get a Lehman moment, absent a Lehman moment, stocks are going to be higher in 12 months. We are at least 12-month investors. We invest for at least 12 months and oftentimes longer. So on that premise, could stocks go lower over the next one, two, three months? Absolutely. But we're very confident saying stocks from October 2022 to October 2023 are going to be significantly higher. They're going to move a lot higher. So we're buying today because we're at confidence in that 12-month outlook. And that's why we're getting very, very bullish on, on the market at, at these current levels. Now, on the fundamental backdrop, um, something we think that is very important to note is the market is finally on the same page as the Fed. So all year okay. long... All year long, yeah, yeah, it's finally, right? All year long, the narrative has been, um, the Fed is, is kind of said, we're going to hike rates. Like, we're going to hike rates. We're going to hike rates. We're going to hike rates. Are you going to listen to us? We're going to hike rates. And the market has just been calling their bluff the whole time, saying, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> Powell and company, all of, his, all of his buddies, that whole team up there, they've been saying, we're going to go 4.5% to 5%. That's where we're going to hike interest rates to. The market just didn't believe them. The market's like, no, you're not going to do that. You don't have the cojones to do that. Like, you're not going to do it. Um, and so two months ago, the, the futures market was pricing in a peak rate of 3%. And that's just gone up and up ever since. 3%, 3.5%, 4%, 4.5%. And as it's been climbing, stocks have been going lower because higher interest rates mean lower stock prices, obviously. So that's been a big driver of the market action is that the futures market has continually had to reprice higher expectations for peak interest rates because it was behind the Fed. But now we're finally caught up to the Fed. My last check on the futures market was a peak rate of 4.95%. 
The Fed says four and a half to five percent. So the market is now finally on the same page as the Fed. What that means to me is that going forward, there is very little room for a hawkish upside surprise. Is the Fed really going to go above five percent? Like we always thought that 5% was like the ultimate hawkish maximum. That's why the markets didn't believe it. So the odds that they go above 5% is very, very, very small. But there's a reason the market didn't believe the Fed was going to go all the way to 5% because there is a large chance that they go less than 5%. So now that the market expectations are at 5%, 4.95% on a peak interest rate, we have very little room for a hawkish surprise but a whole lot of room for a dovish surprise. I like that setup. It means that the odds of us rallying over the next 12 months on a series of dovish surprises is significantly higher than the odds of us sinking over the next 12 months on a series of hawkish surprises. So I like that setup. I also like the setup of inflation collapsing. I get it, September's print was hot, But look at all the leading indicators of inflation. They are significantly falling, perhaps the most important of which is oil. Oil. People have tried to prop up. OPEC Plus has tried to pop oil so much, so freaking much. They have tried so hard and it's not working. The biggest, most important player in the oil supply market announced a 2 million barrel per day production cut. One of the biggest ever announced. And prices still dropped. Prices still went lower. That announcement got it to go from 85 to, I think it was like 92, 93 is when it peaked. And right now I'm checking it. Eighty-two. Back down to eighty-two. No one wants to put a bid on oil. Oil prices are not going up. That's fantastic news for inflation, because oil is an input cost for pretty much every product and service. The either the creation or the distribution of every product and service relies on oil. So oil prices staying low is great for the inflation picture. Now, more importantly, natural gas prices are finally crashing too. One of the conundrums of the summer was that oil prices were collapsing, but <coughs> natural gas prices were not. That natural gas prices actually rallied back to their peak and while oil prices were collapsing. So that's not good because that means our heating bills are still very high. But natural gas prices are now down 40%, more than 40% from their summer peak. They are substantially below their 200-day moving average. Natural gas is rolling over with oil finally. That means your heating, your energy bills are going to go way down. That's fantastic news. That's fantastic news on the inflation front. It's fantastic news for us and consumers as well. So I think inflation is really finally starting to roll over, not to mention the housing part of it, right? Home prices are finally starting to come down. Rents are finally starting to come down. You're seeing that disinflation there. And then I think the labor market is finally starting to weaken. Amazon's announcing layoffs. Microsoft's doing layoffs. There's a whole bunch of companies doing layoffs. It's spreading across everywhere. Um, and I think you're going to finally get those, those job market numbers to come down slow consumer spending, you get lower oil and gas prices, you get lower housing prices. It's a cocktail for massive disinflation over the next 12 months. So when I look at the fundamental picture of the next 12 months, I see massive disinflation. I see a market price for peak hawkishness on a Fed, yet a Fed that's probably going to pivot doubles at some point over the next six months. That sets the stage for a big risk on rally um, in the markets over the next 12 months. So almost out of breath there. but. That, so, is why, so, that is why I'm Let me give you a chance to breathe here real quick. So Go. it sounds like you're, you're painting this picture where a lot of stars are starting to align. A lot of patterns are starting to emerge. Uh, so when you're talking about the big holiday stock shopping spree, mm-hmm. what specifically are you talking about? And how does that, how does right. everything that you just described lead into that? Right. So we're looking at three types of stocks right now uh, to buy. Um, the first type is... We've noticed this really attractive and compelling trend among large cap tech stocks. I'm talking your blue chip tech stocks. Yeah, not in, not particularly Amazon, but stocks like Amazon, Netflix, Apple, Microsoft, uh, Salesforce, uh, Intuit, uh, Adobe, big, big boys like that, the, the big companies, the large blue chip tech stocks. We've noticed a trend among them that a handful of them, a significant portion of them, are trading 
more than two standard deviations below their five-year average valuation multiples. So let's say, I don't have the exact numbers. I'm kind of going, you know, making these up right here. But let's say Amazon tends to trade at three times trailing sales. Well, today it's trading at two standard deviations below three times trailing sales, or it's historically average uh, valuation multiple. Um, that's, that's a pretty attractive setup because that means we have stocks that are priced for death, essentially, or priced for very bad times ahead. And that means probably means it's a great buying opportunity. Buy the dip. You want to buy something two standard deviations below its average. And that's especially true as it relates to these blue chip tech stocks because there's no bankruptcy risk with blue chip tech stocks. There's no risk of relevancy. Like they're going to remain very solid businesses, growing very nicely with very big cash flows and profits with strong balance sheets for the next five to 10 years at least. So you want to buy those stocks when they're on sale because it's like buying high quality steak when it's on sale. It's like buying a filet mignon when it's on sale. Like a filet is a filet. It's going to be good when you go home <laughs> and cook it. So buy the filet if it's on sale. Um, that's what we're seeing in the market right now. We're seeing a lot of filet mignons on sale. And so we're going out and we're buying them. We're recommending some, we've traditionally stayed away from large cap tech stocks. As you know, we were actually in uh, late 2021, mid 2021, very bearish on a lot of those names. You thought they were overvalued because they were trading two standard deviations above their historically average valuation multiples. But now they're trading two standard deviations below. So we're going in and we're buying the dip on a lot of those names. We're getting really aggressive there. We're getting really excited, but we're seeing in, in that world. So that's one type of stock we're buying. Large cap, blue chip tech stocks, trading at huge discounts to their regular valuations. And if that stock has a particularly compelling upside catalyst on the horizon, all, all the more power to it. So that's one type of stock we're buying. The second type of stock we're buying are what we call divergent stocks, or what I call divergent stocks. Now, mm-hmm. you're familiar with, with the divergence phenomenon. We've talked and, about it here before, but maybe give a quick uh, recap yeah, of what they are. Yeah. For so divergence is that, this idea that, and it's a very simple idea, um, stock prices should move hand in hand with the company's fundamentals. So if you graph the company's revenues, that should trace the stock price or a company's cash flows or a company's earnings or a company's book value, whatever fundamental metric you want to choose, that company's fundamental metric should track the stock price. So the stock price should track the fundamental metric. Um, a divergence occurs when the fundamental metric continues to move higher. Revenues keep growing, earnings keep growing, cash flows keep growing, book value keeps growing. Yet the stock price starts to drift. It either goes sideways or moves lower, creating a divergence between those two lines. Typically, you want to buy those divergences because they always snap back. So long as that revenue line, cash flow line, book value line, whatever line it is, continues to move higher, eventually the stock price that has drifted away from it is going to snap back. It's like a rubber band. The relationship's like a rubber band. And the farther it stretches, the quicker it snaps back to its normal state, its resting state, which is being with that fundamental metric line. So that's the divergence phenomenon. And what we're getting really aggressive on right now, in addition to large cap tech stocks, is or are divergent stocks that we're seeing a lot of small to mid cap tech stocks that have diverged significantly from their fundamental trend lines because everybody is predicting this big recession around the corner. And so people are starting to price into stocks a revenue decline or an earnings decline or a cash flow decline or a book value decline when in fact, we don't think you're going to get that in a lot of names. I think a lot of these names are going to remain resilient. A lot of these names are going to continue to grow and have been continuing to grow. And even if they do slow down, we're talking about a lot of companies that are growing at 30, 40, 50% year over year. So if they slow to 20% year over year, that's still 20% year over year. So the divergence is still very real. So we're looking at those stocks as well. We're trying to buy a lot of divergent stocks right now. Fundamentally strong, smaller cap, mid cap growth stocks that have been crushed while their fundamental businesses have remained very healthy. We're buying those stocks. We think their snapback potential as this bear market ends is very, very strong. The biggest winners after the great financial crisis were divergent stocks. The biggest winners after the dot-com crash were divergent stocks. The biggest winners after the late 1980s were divergent stocks. So we're very bullish on those divergent stocks. And then third, we're just looking at really compelling technology companies that don't have divergences because they're pre-revenue and are not large cap because they're still very early. We're looking at companies in that world because we think they have been completely discounted uh, relative to their long-term potential. And we want to buy those stocks because, again, we think as a risk on rally does materialize, 
those stocks have major bounce back potential. So we're kind of operating in those three wheelhouses, large cap tech that's on fire sale, divergent stocks that are trading well below their fundamental values and compelling long-term technology stocks that investors have just thrown in the waste bin because they're not making profits or cash flows today, but which have tremendous long-term potential that will be realized by investors once the risk sentiment turns the corner. So that's that's our three baskets we're operating in right now. So is is now the time to start paying attention to these stocks or is now the time to start buying these stocks? Putting money to work. I, 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 believe, I believe now is the, the put money to work time. Um, like I said, we, now we talked about it on this podcast where we've been waiting for that grand finale sell off. And we think we, we finally had that. And again, I'm, it's really hard to call a stock market bottom. And I'm not saying we're at the bottom. I'm not saying this is the bottom, but I'm saying that absent, this is very critical. So I, I might say it three or four times. <laughs> absent a Lehman moment, absent another yeah. black swan risk. It is very likely that stocks are working through a bottoming process right now and will be higher in 12 months. So if you're an investor who believes that you're going to be holding stocks for at least 12 months, I believe now is a pretty good time to put some, some money to work. That, 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 is, that is what I am doing. And so I, I think mm-hmm. that, that is, that's a good strategy at this point in time. Um, but we have to continue to monitor the risk because if there is a, a black swan that does emerge, uh, then every the calculus completely changes. Um, unfortunately, no financial model can predict black swan risks, and we have to just be prepared for one if it comes. But I think the odds of it happening are very low, and therefore it, it's a good time to start being a bit more risk on uh, with portfolios. All right. Well, a lot of insight there, ton of good stuff. Um, Want to switch gears a little bit. And on a separate note, one thing I wanted to pick your brain was the metaverse. Uh, you know, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg seems to be continuing to push the envelope aggressively yeah. with all his metaverse dreams. Uh, yet, again, no one I know is really playing in these metaverse spaces. Uh, yeah. Horizon Worlds comes to mind. You know, we... I do, I do agree with a lot of what people are saying that eventually we will have a metaverse but is Zuckerberg the person that's going to be leading this uh, new phase? or And what does the future of the metaverse actually look like moving forward? Yeah, great questions, Aaron. Great questions. Um, you know, metaverse to me is one of those technologies that got way too overhyped and is now deflating, but is simultaneously trying to find its niche because there is a value out there. So what I see the metaverse as and why I'm actually bullish on the metaverse, let's be clear on that. I am bullish on it. (laughs) It's not because I'm bullish on what Zuckerberg is building. Personally, I have no interest in that. Some people do, though. And that's a thing. That's why I'm bullish on the metaverse. The metaverse allows for the creation of a digital world. Now, that digital world can be whatever you really want it to be. It can be what Zuckerberg is trying to build, which is literally a virtual world where you have an avatar and you make friends and you hang out and you play games and you climb trees and you you chit chat and all that <laughs> stuff. Like that is one way you can use the digital world. Another way you Finding can use trees. It, Got it. Cool. Yeah. Um, another way you can do it is. Uh, uh, digital twin technology. So you can plug into the metaverse and you can go see a, a real world replica and walk through a real world replica of the Great Pyramids of Egypt or the Colosseum or on the Great Wall of China. Um, that's an application I would use. Uh, another application is a business owner can plug into their spaces that, so let's say you're a real estate operator or you're, you own a bunch of restaurants or something, you can plug into your restaurants all across you know, the country or the state or the city or wherever you are. Um, let's say you own restaurants and you live in LA, but you have restaurant chains or restaurant locations in San Diego, uh, Las Vegas, New York, and Houston. Uh, as opposed to flying out and seeing them, you can plug into the virtual world and visit them via real dynamic technology enabled by hardware at those locations. That's a pretty cool application. Um, so when I think about, and then another one is, is digital shopping. Some people really like to try on clothes, virtual try on. I think that could be a really big application of, of the metaverse. So when we look at the metaverse, 
And the reason I'm bullish is because the opportunities are actually kind of, li- it's kind of like the internet, it's kind of limitless. Like when the internet came around, a lot of people were like, oh, I'm not going to use it to, um, you know, listen to music or, or, uh, or chat with friends or all that stuff. But eventually, as the internet matured and grew and became more of a ubiquity, everybody found something they could do on the internet. Even my 985 year old grandmother is finding things <laughs> you can do on the internet now that, that, that are useful. And I think that is what the metaverse is going to go through. A very similar maturing and aging process that we're all laughing at Zuckerberg's version of the metaverse today. And I get it. I'm laughing at it, too. It's comically bad. It really is. But that's not what VR, XR, AR are all about. That is one facet of what they can do. What they're really going to do is unlock a whole new world of possibilities that eventually all 9 billion people on Earth, when this becomes a ubiquity, will find some utility for whether it's, again, going to visit the Great Pyramids of Egypt, whether it's to virtually tour a hotel room before you buy it, whether it's to manage your restaurant or retail locations from a central headquarters, whether it's to plug in and, and play games with your friends in, in a virtual world, whether it's to um, go shopping with friends in a virtual world, uh, regardless of what it is, we're all going to find some utility. And that's why I'm bullish on the metaverse. I, I think that there is a lot of potential there. Now, what Meta is doing, the bull thesis on Meta is this. And I'm, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to this, but this is the bull thesis. Stocks dirt cheap. Of course, we all know that. Instagram's dying. Facebook's already dead. WhatsApp and Messenger are proving impossible to monetize. So the whole future of the business is <laughs> in the metaverse. Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse, I think, is dumb. But they have a crap ton of cash and they are allocating a ton of resources to building the hardware necessary to plug into the metaverse. So the long-term bull thesis on meta is, again, I don't necessarily subscribe to this, but this is what a bull would tell you. Meta is becoming the Apple or Microsoft of the metaverse. Microsoft built the computers that allowed you to plug into the internet. Apple built the iPhone that allowed you to plug into the internet. Meta is now building the headsets and the hardware that will allow you to plug into the metaverse. So as the metaverse becomes ubiquity, even if Zuckerberg's software version of the metaverse is a complete joke, in building that, they had to simultaneously create the hardware necessary to plug into the metaverse. So they're kind of becoming more of a hardware company. So that's the long-term bull thesis on Meta. I don't necessarily subscribe to it. I think there's a lot of competition with Microsoft, with Alphabet. Um, and I don't know that necessarily believe that Meta is going to be the one to pull it off from the hardware angle. But that's the bull thesis on Meta. So long story short, I do believe in the metaverse, not because I believe in what Zuckerberg is building or what his vision for it is, but rather because beyond that, I see many use cases that eventually all of us will find some utility in a virtual world. Um, and as much as you might say today that you don't, I believe that, that you probably will, just like <laughs> So you, you brought up an interesting analogy between the adoption of the internet versus the uh, how you know nobody was going to use it for shopping, nobody was going to use it for, to listen to music. Do you feel that because we have the internet, because we have that familiarity with a – uh, a system where we have all these capabilities. Why does it seem like the barrier of entry to the metaverse is so much higher right now that than one would expect with somebody who grew up with the internet with all of these tools and, and services at our disposal? Uh, we didn't grow up with the headsets, right? We didn't, we didn't grow up with the headset. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a totally intrusive item. And I think we've talked about this before. I think in order for the metaverse to really gain traction, it has to become non-intrusive. When did the internet really take off? People think, oh, the internet took off in the 90s and 2000s. No, it didn't. Internet penetration rates didn't rise exponentially until the 2010s. What happened Mm -hmm. in the 2010s? Apple created a thing called an iPhone that put the internet in the palm of your freaking hand. Breakthrough technologies like the internet don't go mainstream, become ubiquity until they become hyper accessible 
in the palm mm-hmm. of your hand. A headset is not hyper accessible. It has to be charged. It stays in one place in the room. It's like a desktop computer, basically. And it's even more intrusive and isolating because you actually put it on and you just zone out from the world. Not That's not going to work. Once the hardware advances to a stage of... We get, we get an iPhone similar device for the, um, for the metaverse, for virtual reality, for augmented reality, for extended reality. I think that's either going to be glasses or contacts or something like that. Um, once that becomes a thing, then we see hockey stick like growth in metaverse engagement. At least that's my thesis. Um, and so that to answer your question, I think that is partially why, even though People like you and me and you know, everybody under the age of 35 has grown up in the world of the internet and knows nothing but the internet. The metaverse still feels alien because the way we plug in the internet is not really intrusive. We're at dinner and we're on our phones. We're in a movie theater and we're on our phones. We're at a ball game and we're on our phones, right? You can't do that with the metaverse. You can't bring your headset to dinner. You can't bring your headset to the ball game. <laughs> You can't bring your headset to the movie theater. Once you can bring those technologies to our everyday lives, then you create access for mainstream to use this technology. But until we get there, it's going to remain niche. And so that's why we're looking at the companies and their hardware developments. And they're not there yet, but they're going to get there. And when they get there, that's when we get really bullish from an investment perspective on metaverse stocks, on VR stocks, on AR stocks, XR stocks, all that stuff. Okay. Um, well, speaking of overhyped technologies that are now trying to redefine themselves and find their niche, uh, I have a question that's going to be specific to you. Uh, what's your latest on at-home fitness? Uh, last we spoke, you were very anti-Peloton, uh, and that stock was crushed. Uh, I know that you were you were a proponent of the system that you got. Um, the Oh, what is it called? You have it in your... Yeah, what's it called? Oh on, man, you, I've used it too. You used it, buddy. I know, and my brain is just not not functioning tonal. right now. It's so much fun. Tonal, 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 and you have a tonal. Uh, what, what when we're talking about uh, uh, at home fitness stocks and what is it, what's the latest? Uh, should we still stay away from Peloton? Should we be investing in tonal, uh, or should we just be staying away altogether from these uh, types of redefining technologies? Um, so I, yeah, the, that home fitness trend, I think is, again, it's like the metaverse, in my opinion, it's, it's another one of these technologies that has lot that got overhyped, lost its way, but is now coming back and finding its niche. So I've been really anti Peloton for a long time. You know, this, um, been really, <laughs> the tonal is not investable and that's more of a personal bias. I just love my tonal machine, but, um, from a, from a Peloton perspective, I found it really interesting a couple of weeks back, maybe two weeks back, when they signed a deal with Hilton, where they're going to basically integrate all of their fitness equipment into Hilton hotels. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. You know, that's, that's a place where Peloton can thrive. People need gyms uh, at hotels, obviously. Most Hiltons have gyms. Uh, and then the Peloton is just a kind of classier, more upscale, more effective uh, fitness equipment machine that simultaneously has a software so that if you have a Peloton at home and you have your account, then you can go onto that Peloton at the Hilton hotel, you know, 2000 miles from your home and log into that account and access the same workouts, the same routines, all that stuff. So it creates a sort of connected nature of working out, even though it's not always at home. I think that's a pretty cool, uh, application of Peloton technology. So, I'm not a fan of Peloton. I still am not recommending Peloton stock. I've been anti-Peloton stock for a while, but I do find it interesting that the company is looking for different avenues of growth that I find more interesting than just selling to rich people at home. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think that market is is dried up. Now we got to find other avenues for growth. And I think they're finding that. Let's see what their earnings reports say over the next few quarters. Let's see if they're actually finding new growth. And then maybe we can get constructive on the stock. But at-home fitness in general to me is a trend that will continue to grow. It had a massive boom, had a massive retreat and washout. And then I think it's going to normalize somewhere in the middle. The truth always lies somewhere in the middle of two extremes. So I think that's where we are with that home fitness, that eventually this industry will grow at a very 
reasonable, steady pace. As more and more people work out from home, more and more people look to be fit, more people do do connected fitness. Um, and so I think that there is going to be an opportunity in some of these names soon enough. A lot of them have been washed out. Peloton, of course, being the most washed out. And what I'm waiting for on Peloton is, okay, Hilton deal. Nice. Good win. Can we get more of those? <laughs> and if they can't put more of those together, then you have a the makings of, of a bull thesis on Peloton stock. For now, stuck in no man's land, not touching it. But if they continue to strike more deals like the Hilton deal, then I think we could get a nice turnaround in that stock. So we are watching that one pretty closely. Are there any other at-home fitness uh, businesses doing this type of restructuring, redefining uh, of what they are uh, in order to appeal more towards investors? Or is yeah, this no, what you're seeing? Yeah, Peloton's leading the way there. And that's another reason that, that I think Peloton is, is, is getting a little bit more attractive to me. Again, not attractive, not saying bye, not at all saying <laughs> that at all. But um, they are leading the way in searching for different avenues of growth. Everybody else is still trying to pound the table on just selling to consumers at their homes. Um, and I, you know, Peloton's looking for different growth. And I like that because I think the selling to rich people at home is, is, is game over. Like that game's done. So we got to find a new game to play. And Peloton is searching for that new game to play. And I like that they're searching. Half the battle is trying and they're trying. So I applaud that. And if there are results <laughs> there, then I think the stock can work. I'm not gonna lie, that's high praise coming from you for Peloton. So I'm, I'm Yeah, I've been, yeah I mean, I remember we were in Baltimore together. We did we did the shoot in Baltimore, this show in Baltimore together when I was there for a shoot. And um yeah, I remember being very negative on Peloton. That's back when it was what a thirty, thirty-five dollar stock. Now it's seven dollars, six dollars out even After being bullish on Peloton. Yeah, I've 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 ridden the roller coaster on on Peloton. I was <laughs> bearish, bullish, bearish, bullish, bearish, and then now I'm I'm now kind of turning towards a neutral stance and waiting curious. For, curious. for the company. Curious, there you go. Curious about what they're doing. So, um, yeah, at home fitness is is a trend that I think has a little bit of staying power. It's not going to be massive, but the stocks are so so beaten up that uh, the slightest bit of good news get them to work and and. That's what I like with Peloton. The thing about Peloton, though, that that's risky is just the balance sheet. You know, they just they overhired so much during the the pandemic boom, and they just got so much inventory, so much production. Then they had to start selling for massive losses. They had to start firing people. They were running massive um, uh, cash burn, and they had to raise a bunch of debt just to stay afloat. So the whole liquidity situation over there is not pretty. If you remove that liquidity situation stock, even if they don't hit a bunch of big deals is a buy. But because of that liquidity situation, we need to see a lot more firepower <laughs> on the growth side of things in order for the stock to be a buy. Okay. Uh, another overhyped trend, uh, hybrid work. Uh, lots of right. companies uh, seem to be, for better or for worse, ordering folks back to the office. Um, you know, is it time to ditch DocuSign, Zoom, and all the other hybrid work stocks? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that is a fantastic, 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 fantastic point. Um, pretty much everybody's ordering people back to the office or most companies are ordering, uh, workers back to the office. And so a lot of people are saying that is the, the end of hybrid work. I don't think so. My thesis is that, okay, um, the work model going forward is three or four days in the office a week and one or two days of work at home. Um, I don't think five days in the office is ever going to be a real standardized thing. Uh, across all of corporate America and certain companies that, of course, it will be, but not across all of corporate America. So I think you're getting, again, um, like at-home fitness, hybrid work followed this massive boom, massive bust, and then the truth lies somewhere in the middle of the two extremes. We're going to find some stable state at which we can grow reasonably. Uh, and that's where hybrid work is. And if you look at those stocks like Zoom, like DocuSign, like Green Central, they've been crushed and they're now priced for essentially zero growth. Once they pull off some growth, the stocks will work. So I don't think it's time to throw in the towel on those stocks. The difference between them and Peloton is one, they're actually still growing. Uh, two, they're profitable. And three, they don't have massive balance sheet risk. So the Zooms, DocuSigns, Ring Centers of the World actually look pretty good to me here. I think that those stocks can do well over the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, because I think hybrid work is a model that is still going to stick around for the long run. Not to mention, think about their business models. They make money if a company is subscribed to their software. 
it doesn't matter how many people are really using it. You know, mm-hmm. what matters is if that company is still subscribed to the software. Are these people all going to set an all cancel Ring Central, all cancel Zoom, all cancel DocuSign? Absolutely not. Who's going to cancel those things? We bought them. Now they're part of our toolkit. They're part of our arsenal. Because some days you're going to work from home. Some days you're going to be on a business trip. Some days you're going to be doing something else. You're not always in, not everyone's even in the office all the time anymore. So why would we get rid of a tool that helps us, that helps connect us? We're not. So companies are not going to get rid of their hybrid work solutions. They're just maybe going to use them a bit less. And that's totally fine for these companies' business models because a lot of them are not usage-based. So I think that, that is, that's an important financial um, thing to note when it comes to hybrid work stocks like DocuSign, Zoom, uh, and all those names. So, no, I'm, I'm actually pretty bullish on those stocks, yeah. Is there a future where these companies that are ordering people back to work, where they just lose these people who got used to work from home, hybrid remote, and just are going to go to companies that do offer that? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Yeah, that's definitely a weird situation. I think that the balance of the labor market is going to shift in favor of employers pretty soon. I think that was the case. You just said has been the case for a while. But I think as the economy slows, as layoffs start to hit the pike, as unemployment rates start to rise, um, you're going to see the shift in labor market dynamics from employees have all the power to employers have more power. And as that shift takes place, it's going to be much harder for employees to negotiate hybrid work into their contracts. And so I think whatever an employer ends up saying is simply just going to be. And there's not going to be much churn as a result of people being forced back into the office. I think there will be some on the margin, but not a lot. Okay. Uh, Shifting to our big three check-in, space, robotics, climate tech. How are you feeling on those? Yeah, still bullish as ever, Aaron. Really still bullish as ever. Um, Amazon <laughs> I thought is, as much. Amazon is jumping into space. They're planning to launch their own version of the Starlink satellites, uh, internet connectivity satellites uh, very soon. So Amazon jumping into the space game. That's bullish. Um, robotics, we're seeing a lot of just mainstream coverage on how robots are saving the day in a lot of labor markets right now, mostly in restaurant and retail and, and uh, factory work. That That's where robots are really having a major, major, major impact. So we're still very bullish on, on robotic stocks. And um, climate tech, you know, the fall in oil prices actually hasn't, you know, I, I, if, as a climate tech bull, having high oil prices is good for climate tech adoption. But um Outside of that, I think there's still a huge push for a lot of climate tech going on. We're seeing a lot of companies start new solar projects. A lot of companies start new energy storage projects. A lot of companies uh, increase production of their EVs. Stellantis, for example, one of the major automakers in the world, uh, just this week announced a massive production, uh, massive increase in the production capacity of electric vehicles. Um, so we're seeing the whole EV, solar, ESS megatrend continue to persist at, at very healthy rates. So broadly, yeah, still very bullish on space, robotics, and climate tech for 2023. I think those three groups of stocks will be some of the biggest winners uh, over the next 12 months. Okay. Uh, well, that kind of wraps up all our topics, but we definitely have some fan questions this week from Danny Luong. Analysts are speculating that the big recession is coming in the first or second quarter of 2023. Do you think we should wait until then to load up on both stocks and cryptos? Yeah, I mean, that's no, that's that's when you, you buy before markets, a discounting mechanism. That's what a lot of people kind of fail to understand is that they always wait to buy until the news hits. And by that time, the market price is already the price actions already happened. It's already been digested by the market. So you have to buy before things happen. You have and you have to sell before things happen. You had to. I mean, 2020 hindsight. Uh, you had to sell in late 2021 when things looked pretty good. Nobody was talking about, you know, a war. Nobody was talking about a crash. No one was talking about a recession. But they were going to start talking about that. So you want to sell before that. Um, and, you know, flip side of the coin is here we are today. Everyone's talking about a recession coming in early 2023, mid 2023. Everyone's talking about earnings coming down, all that stuff. Uh, you want to buy before all that stuff actually happens because it's getting priced into stocks. Why are stocks down 30% this year? I mean, I think we talked about this last week, but that's that's the question you have to come back to. Why are stocks down 30% this year? 
Unemployment rates have dropped in 2022. The labor markets continue to add 200, 300,000, 400,000 jobs a month this year. Corporate earnings have continued to grow this year at a very healthy pace. Why are stocks down 30%? They're down 30% because they're a discounting mechanism. They're forward-looking. They're telling you the 30% decline in stocks in 2022 reflects the 2023 outlook. So the 2023 price action will reflect the 2024 outlook. You got to look ahead. You got to be one, two, three, four steps ahead. You can't just look at what the media narratives are saying and then respond to that. That is a surefire way to lose money in the markets. As soon as the media comes out and says, buy, sell. As soon as the media comes out and says, sell, <laughs> you got to buy. Just do the opposite of what the media says and you'll be fine. That's, that's how I view things. So now that everybody's coming out and saying, recession, recession, crash, Crash, earnings from now. Earnings. Now that I'm seeing all that, all my contrarian indicators are flashing. You know, investor sentiment as bearish as it's ever been. Cash positioning as high as it's ever been. Short positioning as high as it's ever been. That's a stage that is set for a massive rally, not a massive crash. And so when people are talking about recession 2023, I say by 2022, because 2023 is going to be a gangbuster year for stocks, my two cents. All right. Uh, and our last question from Rob Norman. When the 10-year was 2.7%, you predicted 2%. It's now 4%. Is your target still 2%? Yeah, I, I think the 10-year comes crashing down. I think that once, once the Fed does pivot, once the economy does start to weaken, uh, you're going to get a massive crash in the 10-year treasury. A lot of people think that inflation is sticking around for a long time. It's not. It's just, it's just not. This is not the 70s. In the 70s, we had an economy built on oil and manual labor without the internet. Today, we have an economy diversified from oil, built on a mix of manual labor and automation, built our, uh, with the internet. It's just a fundamentally different backdrop. Again, in this backdrop, productivity is high, efficiency is high, and costs are low. So we are going to move into an environment of much lower inflation over the next few years. And as we do, yields will start to reflect that. The interest rates will start to reflect that. The Fed will start to reflect that. And I think that the 10-year ultimately does stabilize in a you know three, five, seven-year window around 2 to 3%. And before it stabilizes there, it probably crashes below that level. So yeah, I still think we get a 2% 10-year at some point in 2023. Okay. Uh, well, great insights for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. you have any last words before we wrap? Um, you know, not really, Aaron. That was, a, that was a busy, full segment. Lots of data, lots of ideas thrown at the viewers and listeners. <laughs> so just digest all that, sit with it, and understand that there's, there's a reason we're starting to get pretty bullish right now uh, because a lot of sentiment indicators, technical indicators, valuation indicators are flashing. Hey, this, this this looks like it could be a bottom. Not is a bottom. No one can ever say with certainty that we're at a stock market bottom, but it certainly looks like it could be a bottom, and therefore it's worth putting some risk on the table. That's where we are right now. Well, again, thank you for painting that great picture at the top of this call, and we want to thank everybody for listening. If you have any questions or comments for Luke, please leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear any feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Uh, until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Bye, all. 